Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. And we are going to begin reading in verse 1. Galatians 5, verse 1 to verse 6. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. A few weeks ago, I uh, spoke on the topic of the danger of appearances and how there's a tendency to consider only external things which is rooted in self-centeredness and how that tendency can lead oftentimes to a misperception of other people into other things. And then we saw that by relying on our own intellect, on our own abilities, that we are never able to come to a realization of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God, as the only Savior of the world. In fact, even a Christian who relies on himself or herself, on our own abilities, we will never come to a unity in Jesus Christ as a body. So we went on then to discuss how the only thing that a person can do if he's to be right with God, if he's to rightly understand himself and anything else, is that he is to go out of himself. He has to look in faith at the trustworthy character of God. He has to deny himself. And... In First Peter, we see that Jesus Christ, our great example, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Of course, for the, the person without Christ, this type of self-denial is impossible. But even for the Christian here in our life, we have this war between fleshly, earthly minds and the supernatural illumination of the Spirit of God. And this is the essence of the fight of faith that we have. Well, today I want to consider with you the topic of living faith, or as Paul describes it in Galatians 5-6, faith working. The context of this passage is that many Gentiles have become regenerate in Galatia, which is in Asia Minor, but certain Jewish teachers, Judaizers, had come along and had convinced these young Christians that they still had to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised. Well, Paul quickly affirms his own authority as an apostle and says right at the beginning in chapter 1 that the teachings of these Judaizers is a distortion of the gospel of Christ, and he ultimately 
goes on to say in Galatians 1.10, in the form of, of rhetorical questions, that those who rely on, the, on works for their salvation are striving to please men rather than God. And then he, he proceeds throughout this letter repeating one essential, and that is justification is through faith, by faith, of faith, and not by the works of the law. <clears throat> and I thought we could just consider a few passages to get a feel of things this morning. Uh, starting in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So you see, through faith we're justified by faith in Christ were justified. And then chapter 3, starting at verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. <clears throat> the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as, as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. So you see, through faith, by faith, of faith, we're justified. And we begin to see <clears throat> that any person who would begin to even start to think that their justification was contingent upon their own obedience to God is placing themselves under the curse of the law. So what's, what's the purpose of the law? And Paul then goes on in, in verse 24 of chap, chapter 3. Therefore the laws become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law leads us to Christ. And then I think it's an amazing statement. Paul says, faith has come. So that is the position of the Christian. The Christian is in the sphere of faith. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And then in chapter 4, uh, just quickly here so we can understand the context of, of chapter 5, we see that because Christ is born under law to redeem men from the law, uh, the Christian is not one who is under the Mosaic Covenant, but he's under the New Covenant. He's not of the bondwoman, but he's of the free woman. He's not under law but he is of the promise. So the Christian is one who has received the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
And so this is all very important as we focus on chapter 5 today, which begins with this pronouncement, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So when Christ makes someone free, he makes them free indeed. As it says in John, he frees them from the demands of the law. He frees them from slavery to sin. He frees them from slavery to self and from slavery to a fleshly mind. So Christ sets us free so that we can obey him wholeheartedly. So we need the Lord's grace to to take all of this as it is, lest we ever begin to think that our position before God is based on our obedience to him. What does it say of Abraham that we read in chapter 3, verse 9? Does it say, Abraham the obeyer? No. It says, Abraham the believer. Think of all the things that could be said about Abraham. All the different things. And here it says, Abraham the believer. That's all he was. He was a man that believed God. If we turn to ceremony, if we turn to ritual, Paul says Christ has no value to you in chapter 5. He says it's proof that you're not justified at all, that you've put yourself outside of grace. So the Christian is one who by the Spirit, by faith, seeks the righteousness of God. And then Paul makes this amazing statement that we read in chapter 5, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. We have to grasp how significant it is for Paul as a Pharisee to say that. That is no small thing. That is, that is a tremendous thing. <clears throat> For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But what? What does mean something? What does matter? Well, faith working through love. So what we see here is that the door is completely closed against the possibility of legalism. Well, even people who are unwise will agree with Paul at this point in a certain way, but... The tendency is for people to use their freedom from the law, as they see it, to fulfill their own desires. So praise God we have a complete verse here that doesn't end with the question of circumcision versus uncircumcision. But we have faith working through love. That is what matters. So... The first thing we see in Galatians is that we're justified through faith, by faith. But we also see that faith is a lively thing. Faith is not a static thing. Faith is not a secret thing. Faith is expressive. It's demonstrable. It's something that is shown. So faith works. That's what it says here. Faith working through love. So it's not working in the sense that it's effective, which it is. It's not just that faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient for 
salvation, for justification, which it is, but it is that true saving faith does things. True faith causes things to occur in the life of a Christian, and the main mode of activity is love. Now, the world knows all about self-love that leads to lawlessness, that leads to antinomianism, a life that is against the law, that has rebelled against the Lord, that is resistant to be constrained by God in any way, that is self-seeking. And there are, I think, sincere Christians who are concerned that we might read passages like this and be concerned that we would be led into a lawless life, a sinful life. But I would argue that a right reading of Scripture makes that impossible because Paul is not talking about self-love here. He's talking about real love. He's saying that keeping the Mosaic law means nothing, but that all that matters is faith being demonstrated through love to others. So just as faith is a going out of ourselves, a looking away from ourselves to Christ for justification, this same faith is a looking away from ourselves in active love to others, not self. So there's no room in any way for an inward view in faith. So what we have here is is living life on the edge of a knife. That's the Christian life. You have heresy on one side, you have sin that so easily entangles on another. So what Paul does is he gives us instruction that is coupled with a warning. And I want us to look at Galatians 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only... Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And I'll go on. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is not antinomian. He is very lawfully minded that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law, that Jesus Christ is the end of the law. Paul is not ignoring the law. He's actually recognizing the law as what it is, in essence, stating that Christ has fulfilled it and exhorting us to use our freedom in Christ to serve one another in love as well. So the question we have to ask is, what are we doing with our freedom? So we've been freed from the law. We've been justified through faith, and not by works. That is plain. But the only thing that matters in our life here on earth is faith working through love. We will never be sanctified without faith working, and every true Christian is being sanctified. That's the second thing. The third thing we have is this warning. Beware lest you use your supposed freedom in Christ to serve yourself. Because if you do, you will see at the end that you've been deceived and you're not saved at all. So what does true faith look like? What does faith working through love look like? We need to get practical in this. So 
We'll read the next few verses in Galatians 5, starting at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So in answering the question of what real faith looks like, Scripture emphasizes the fact that the Christian life is a war between the desires of our flesh, that is, the part of us that's not regenerate, the part of us in which sin tries to reside, like Paul talks about in Romans. There's a war between our flesh and the Spirit of God that is living in us. And the promise is given that if we are by faith walking according to the Spirit, If we're being led by the Spirit, we will not follow our own selfish desires. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. That's a tremendous statement. That's a tremendous fact. Well, the the section that follows is, is, is a little complicated as Paul goes into vivid descriptions of the deeds of the flesh. He says the deeds of the flesh are evident. He says they're obvious. But I'll say that one great theme through this is that there is a tremendous fleshly desire that we have to continue with on earth, which is the tendency for division. And this section begins and ends with that emphasis in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And then verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So you see that emphasis. Well, let's... Let's go through this just uh, because I think it's, it's easy to skim over um, these different descriptors of the deeds of the flesh, which we shouldn't do. I don't want to glorify sin, but we do have this here for our benefit as a warning. So starting in verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there are 15 different things here that Paul uh, discusses And he says again that they are obvious manifestations of the flesh. And they can be broken down into three main camps, which are how you treat your body, what you worship, and how you treat other people. Those are the three main things. And the first things, immorality, impurity, and sensuality, pertain to, to... sexual things. And these are the actually the same three words in Greek that Paul uses in Second Corinthians chapter twelve that he mourns over. 
So the word here, immorality, is the word pornea, pornea, uh, sexual sin. Impurity has to do with touching things that are unclean uh, or engaging in things that are defiling to the conscience. And then sensuality here pertains to conduct that is uh, shocking to public decency. I'll say that. So all these are grouped together as, as sexual sin. And the, the second group we see is, is the element of worship. Idolatry, obviously, is worshiping an idol. It's worshiping anything other than the true God. Sorcery, is, it's the word uh, pharmakia, actually. And it has to do with you know, spells, magic, witchcraft, things like that. And then the next eight items are all, I think, fundamentally regarding division. So you have enmities, which is hostility toward others. You have strife, which is a readiness to quarrel or an, a, an affection for dispute. Think about that. There are people who enjoy disputing, who enjoy arguing. And Paul makes it clear here that just as the person who is engaged in sexual sin, who practices sexual sin, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, so it is true of the person who is an affection for disputing. They're the same list. Jealousy, a fervent, burning, ungodly emotion towards someone. Outbursts of anger, I think that's self-explanatory, having this intense emotion that's expressed. Disputes, there's a, a selfish ambition, a rivalry. Uh, dissensions are divisions that are wrongly based on pointless grounds. And these are all too common among professing Christians, right? Divisions wrongly based on pointless grounds. Factions, the formation of exclusive groups based on non-essential things, based on self-chosen opinions. These are things that we have to run from, we have to flee from them. Envying, having strong feelings that sour due to the influence of sin. So you see the time that Paul takes here to address the profound problem of divisiveness among a body. And then he closes regarding uh, elements pertaining to alcohol. So drunkenness, that's self-explanatory, carousing, participating in parties that involve alcohol and sexual immorality. And then, of course, this list is not meant to be all-encompassing, and it ends with things like these. It says you get the idea. So if we, <clears throat> if we read this passage with a practical mindset, I think you get something like this. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are... Viewing pornography or engaging in any sexual activity outside of marriage. Participating in sexual sin. Participating in activities that are socially indecent or with a goal to shock others. And I would say that pretty much takes care of most things on the internet. Worshipping anything other than the one true God. Participating in witchcraft. Being hostile to others. 
being ready to argue, being full of anger or intense emotion, rivalry, divisiveness toward others, making yourself stand aloof from others because of your own self-chosen opinions or having bitterness toward others, becoming drunk or participating in immoral parties. Again, these things are evident. These things are obvious. These things cannot be hidden. And Scripture says that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Scripture means to encourage us, not to beat us into a hole. It doesn't end there. It goes on and says, but, contrasting with that, the fruit of the Spirit, and I think the context would lend to this interpretation, but the fruit of the Spirit is also evident, which is, how do we summarize these things? Love and the manifestations of love. So, we'll read that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You see the contrast between those two. I mean, you almost feel defiled just reading the list of the deeds of the flesh. But instead here, of jealousy or envy, you have joy. Instead of strife or readiness to quarrel, you have peace with other people. Instead of disputes or dissensions or factions, you have patience and kindness toward each other. Instead of envying bitterness, you have faithfulness and gentleness, and instead of outbursts of anger, you have self-control. What is the state of such a person before God? (laughs) What does Paul say? Against such things there is no law. There is nothing that can condemn such a person who is walking in the reality of the Spirit. So, such a person is living under the control of the Spirit of God. He's acceptable to God, not just positionally in his justification, but practically in his sanctification as well. Well, someone may ask, what do I do when someone has hurt me and I have become avoidant and bitter? Or what do I do when I disagree with another Christian and I cannot see myself united with that person anymore? Or what if, despite my best intentions, I have found that I am full of jealousy and covetousness? The answer is we need faith. I think Lloyd-Jones wrote something very wise when he wrote, It is a poor type of Christianity that has this wonderful faith with respect to salvation and then whimpers and cries when confronted by the daily trials of life. The answer is, we need faith. Verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have to start at the beginning. We have to recognize that we belong to Jesus Christ. That if we're a Christian... 
we can, by the power of God, by his spirit, continue to crucify the flesh with all of its manifestations. This is, this is, this is a real thing. I thought this uh, quote from Henry Skugel was useful. The severities of a holy life and that constant watch which we are obliged to keep over our hearts and ways are very troublesome to those who are only ruled and acted by an external law and have no law in their minds inclining them to perform their own duty. But where divine love possesseth the soul, it stands as sentinel to keep out everything that may offend the beloved and disdainfully repulses those temptations which assail it. It makes mortification and self-denial change their harsh and dreadful names and becomes easy, sweet, and delightful things. We need the power of God. We need a lively faith. I usually don't quote people this much, but I think these things are helpful. Again, Lloyd-Jones said, As long as a man is living for himself, he is sensitive, watchful, and jealous. He is envious and is therefore always reacting immediately to what others do. He is in, an, he is in intimate contact with them. The only way to detach yourself from what others do to you is that you first of all detach yourself from yourself. What is he talking about? He's talking about crucifixion. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. I think... A common problem is that when we're faced with trials, we think far too much about how much we have been wronged and not near enough about how much we have wronged God. Surely if God in Christ Jesus has ultimately disregarded our sins, if God has ultimately forgotten our sins in Christ Jesus... Remember them no more, then surely we can disregard the wrongs that others have done to us. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. If you are alive by the Spirit of God, then walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So, to close, we've been freed from the law. We've been justified through faith and not by works. Secondly, the only thing that matters in our life is faith working through love. Thirdly, be sure that you do not use your supposed freedom in Christ to serve yourself. And then lastly here, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Nothing you have done will matter at all. Nothing you've done to yourself, nothing you've done to, to anything else has any value but faith working through love. God help us.